Listen, if you dare, to the Lovecraft tapes. Hey there, fans. This is Gabe from the Lovecraft Tapes podcast, coming back at you with another episode of Talking Tapes, or, you know, whatever Jeremy decides to title this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Labossier. He's the author of many popular Call of Cthulhu scenarios, including I Want to Kill the Ice Cream Man, which we used as a Chapter Zero, Thin Jack, which we used as Chapter One, and The Scarecrow, which we used for Chapter Three. Welcome, Michael. Good to be here. And uh, we'll be getting into some questions, some of which I provided and some of which were provided by by the other guys on the show. First and foremost, how and when did you get started with RPGs, first as a player and also as a creator? Well, my first start was way back in the ancient days of 1979. My mother decided uh, she was a guidance counselor, and so she was up on all the latest theory of raising raising children. She uh, had heard this about this new game called Dungeons and Dragons, and it was before you know people were thinking it had to do with Satan. And initially, it had kind of like a you know a good reputation that it would help people socialize. So my mother got me the basic box set. She read through B1, I think it was like In Search of the Unknown, got it all prepped and ran it for my my sister and I and. My sister, that was, I think, her only time time she played, but that that got me hooked. And so that was my start with role-playing. And then um, in terms of getting into the writing, I found that when I got into groups, we would have these mixed groups. You know, people would just sort of meet up and everyone had been a dungeon master sometimes. Everyone knew all the adventures. So if you ran it, someone would go, oh, I, I go up to the lever and I, I throw in a sequence of, you know, one, two, two, three. I don't know how I knew that. I'm just, just so brilliant. And so because everyone knew all the adventures, I, I started having to, to make stuff up. And so I'd, I'd write them and that got me started, you know, back when I started, I was a kid, so I didn't have a lot of money. So I'd buy like one module and then we'd run it and they'd say, well, we still want to play. And so I do what I call these five minute specials. They'd give me like some, some Doritos and five minutes. And I would sit there, you know, fiercely eating Doritos and writing up stuff and whatever I came up with, I'd just run it. And I still, still use that style today in, in my life, you know, five minutes in Doritos, I can get it, get it done. I can hear the headlines now if, you, if your mom had given you that box at a couple years later mother indoctrinates kids into satanism that's true i got into call of cthulhu um as a christmas present and oddly cthulhu never was never really cast i don't think as ever being like satanistic even though it was like the most you know it's a lot closer these, yeah you get all these lovecraftian horrors and stuff and but i got that in um the first set when it first came out as a christmas present so there it was you know enjoying my christmas carols and having my christmas cookies and christmas presents and got my call of cthulhu as a traditional christmas just because people can't pronounce it. That's why it's never viewed as Satanism. That's true. Yeah, you were ahead of the time with the cutesy Cthulhu stuff because that's getting popular now. <laughs> I know, which is sad. It's sad to yeah. see the Mighty Cthulhu reduced to a plushie. He's probably crying as he's dreaming. He's just rolling around crying. I'm a plushie. I'm a plushie. <laughs> that is the true. That is the true nightmare. You know, it's like when people ask, what makes Cthulhu roll sand checks? And the answer is Cthulhu plushies. Well, you know, that might be how it, how it's planning on indoctrinating children in. Oh, get them young. That's a good plan. Yeah, they get the plushies and it's all part of his master plan. Here you go, kids. Have some plushies. Yeah, it next normalizes thing, it. Yeah, next human sacrifice. You know, it's a gateway to that. Here's your plushie. Here's your plushie knife. Here's your real knife. Uh, you said early on in life you had Dungeons and Dragons and then eventually Call of Cthulhu. What exactly was it that drew you to Call of Cthulhu more? I liked ghosts and, and horror because I'm from Maine. In the United States, New England is part of the most haunted place. So it's no wonder we have people like Edgar Allan Poe, Stephen King, etc. And I just kind of grew up with all these ghost stories because everyone has a story in Maine about like the haunted house, you know, something under the bed. And my own house was uh, probably haunted as well. I just had an interesting 
interest in, in ghosts. And I'd gotten a book as a kid called The Gruesome Green Witch. And it was about a witch that uh, she was pretty intense for a kid's book. She was beautiful in the front, but her back was all like decayed and rotten. And she'd lure people into this, this tree. And I'd always liked these ghost stories and horror stories. And I also got a book called The, the Bad Island, uh, which is about monsters. And so the whole ghost, monster, horror stuff really fit in. It's funny because I actually, I was playing Call of Cthulhu before I'd actually read any, any Lovecraft. And then that's what got me into the into the book. So uh, I hadn't even heard of, heard of him. And then reading through it, I'm like, oh, these are these are books. I should probably probably read some of those. Then, of course, I read, read all this stuff. Yeah, I, I find Call of Cthulhu <laughs> very interesting in the fact that so many people get into it before they even read the books. So they end up playing the games and then discovering the lore that they're based on after. And I think that's very unique. Whereas with all the other stuff, there either isn't definitive lore or it's start of like a sort of like a starting point. Yeah, because typically we get a new player for Cthulhu they've they've not read it I mean they've heard of Lovecraft and you know they're familiar with some of that so we'll always end up give them like a couple books to read they're like oh this is really good then we give them the plushie and the knife (laughs) (laughs) so um what is it exactly about ice cream vendors and scarecrow that made you believe that they're such good fodder for horror fiction is there some backstory behind those well the scarecrow of course um totally unoriginal because every horror movie horror story you just got to include a, a scarecrow they're just so creepy and so there i can't claim any any originality or credit for the ice cream man that occurred actually when i was i was heading back from campus and i was on my little little yamaha and i was behind like a particularly kind of grungy gritty ice cream truck the windows were you know kind of blocked out and i was just looking at it's like i wonder what goes on in there i got to thinking like what's the what's the worst thing that could be going on inside that ice cream truck then that this the idea you know of a ice cream man who you know preys on children kind of reversing the whole wholesome enjoyable ice cream experience kind of an excellent tool of horror because if you take things that are perfectly normal and then flip them around it's like you get a double impact because if you take things that are normally spooky like scarecrow crows and everyone expects them to be scary if you take something that is you know really wholesome and nice and flip it effectively then it can become doubly scary of course the thing is if you keep doing that then it kind of wears wears out all my experienced players they always know it's the pillars of the community because they always go into town they're they're like okay who are the pillars of the community they immediately go after those guys because they're probably the the bad guys and so now it's kind of a joke because we always refer to oh yes they were a pillar of the community you know before they before they go and kill them well to keep them on your toes that's why eventually you got to write a story about a child who preys on ice cream men that would oh that'd be that'd be clever you know all these ice cream men go go vanishing and it turns out it's the innocent little kid yeah little billy they gave him the wrong ice cream sandwich oh, i need revenge so you mentioned the doritos and the five minute challenges where you munch on doritos but would you want to walk us through your process as a whole when you're creating a scenario from scratch oh, that's a good question it, it actually is um when i've looked at you know professionally as a philosopher because uh, this uh you know dead guy plato he said that people create just sort of uh, the gods the muses kind of zap them with this creativity and they go out of their minds and just you know create stuff so one view is creation is just kind of irrational craziness you're just sort of spewing on the paper and then there's a, another view edgar Allan poe he wrote a piece about how he constructed the raven he said in his case he carefully constructed it and he even said that he knew the exact number of lines he wanted ahead of time i think that's bs i think he you know wrote it and said Oh yeah, yeah. I, I wanted this number of lines, and I think for my own experience, it's it's kind of both. People ask me like, "Where do you get your ideas?" And I say, "Most of the time, I have a nightmare." 
And they say, oh, do you have a lot of nightmares? I'm like, yeah, they're great, you know, because they're just funny in the bank because have a nightmare, get up quickly, write it down. Or like with the ice cream man, like I'll just see something and my mind will just kind of run. But when I actually do it, I usually do um, an outline handwritten on paper. I have more, I guess, creative flow that way. It's less constraining than at the computer. And then after I get the outline done, like any maps kind of sketched out, then I'll get on the computer, then you know, work out the plot. Um, the story, the details, and then I'll kind of run through in my mind, like I have to have in my mind very particular players, like what would this player do to throw it off the track or what's a likely thing they're going to do to derail it. And that's pretty much the the process. And then for stuff that I publish, I always try to, if possible, play test it first just to, to see where, where things can go terribly, terribly wrong. And my players do not disappoint. <laughs> Is that is that something you you like you look forward to your players derailing your scenarios or is that something you sort of lament? No, sometimes it's um, it's the derailing is actually sometimes better than the original story because it, it'll, it'll sometimes go someplace that is even better. Because I've been fortunate to have really good players. They'll sometimes take adventures in really unexpected ways. Because normally when you play, the, the investigators are they're the heroes. You know, they're they're supposed to beat the bad guy. And I was running um, uh, the Demon of Cathaway, and one of the players had done it before, but that was like you know years ago. And so I changed it up a little bit. And one of the guys decided, as part of his character's backstory, he was going to accept the monster's offer because it's this ancient thing and imprisoned, and it'd been corrupting people with like you know Egyptian treasure and so forth, and luring them. And he offered, he's like, it, it's trapped in a cage, and it's giving its speech, like offering them you know knowledge and power, and it can grant them all this stuff. And he's like. Yeah, sure. And the and the, and the creature's like, wait, wait, what? You're the you're oh oh yeah yeah the power then all you know the knowledge. And so the twist was they end up going over to the side of the creature and it granted them you know all you know powers and spells and knowledge. So the next adventure they they had to come back to kill their own characters because they were the bad guys. And so the this one guy Sean he he said you know I'm going to leave behind his he says like I know I'm going over to the dark side my sanity's failing I'll leave behind the clues for the next person to come along. And so then, you know, a couple months later, I ran the follow up to it, which was them. They were they were the bad guys and they were fighting out of their own characters, which is which was pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, that's something I've done with my non podcast group. I did two scenarios in a row. And at the end of the second scenario, I I revealed that they were just playing the opposite side of the first (laughs) scenario and they lost their minds. (laughs) In your scenario, I want to kill the ice cream man. We feel like it has shades of phantasm and in the mouth of madness and other things like that. Well, in Thin Jack, we feel it gives off strong like X-Files vibes. Do you draw any inspiration from pop culture when you're writing a scenario? I do quite a bit because when I was running... A lot of these are written in the the nineties. A lot of the stuff I did, and I was running a you know twice a week Cthulhu campaign, and it was heavily influenced by the X Files. So they they weren't playing FBI agents, but they were doing kind of the monster of the week thing, where they would go and investigate, and it was often uh, non non mythos. This way, because I, I was faced with the usual quandary: how do you keep a campaign going when normal stuff you encounter, you know, is costing you like a D eight D ten sanity? And so I'd use. Um, It'd be like the mythos background, but then they'd run to things that were lower lower sanity cost. Yeah, and it became kind of like the a lot of heavily influenced from X Files. Also, yeah, in, in the mouths mouths of madness, uh, the Mummy, uh, the Brendan Fraser version, uh, that was actually a strong influence. And it was kind of funny because before the movie came out, uh, one of the players, Ron, we, he's known as the Gun because he's always got the guns, ex special forces guys who have all the gun skills, and so he's always got a duffel bag full of guns. 
And so when we saw the mummy, we were just like laughing at because, you know, there's Brendan Fraser whipping out this big bag of guns. We're like, that's that's Ron. Well, I mean, you've already mentioned that you sort of write for your players, which is a very effective tool, especially when you know them so well. Are there any sort of real life influences other than that when you're writing a story? I'll pay attention to kind of like weird but credible science news. Like, for example, there are microorganisms that steal body parts from other organisms which is true. And so I was working on uh, updating a lot of stuff from 7th edition. And so I have that kind of in the back of my mind, like when I want to write one, there's going to be a creature. That's what it does. It goes around stealing body parts, you know, and incorporating them. Also, whenever there's um, weird science stuff, like the adventure of the hum was based on, there was a, a story, I think these, some people... I don't know, Midwest or someplace, they kept hearing this like high pitched noise they couldn't explain. So, my explanation, of course, it's the Migu. Also, um, the uh, Sinkholes uh, adventure set in Florida, uh, that was based on, uh, I went, when I first saw the Sinkholes, I was like, yeah, that looks like a place something something awful would live. I just, and then I just came up with the, um, you know, the, like a cult um, worshiping the, the creatures dwelling in the sinkhole. And someone actually thought it was real. And they were asking me about, you know, the creature and stuff. I'm like, well, it is Florida. So that is possible. I said, I don't, I don't think they're real, but they never know. A lot of people don't realize that these writers and they all graded horror, but nothing is really scarier than what's real life. Especially in Florida. You know, you've mentioned some aspects of philosophy in your education. Does any of that philosophy go into writing? I'll try to work like ethical issues into it, like having to make... Uh you know, tough moral decisions about, you know, what do you have to sacrifice to, to save others? And, you know, being like an investigator is a moral, if you know, if you don't just say, well, I'm an investigator because I have to play the game. But if you're thinking about your character's motives, ethics comes in. And also one of my specialties is metaphysics. Some of the stuff I've written, I've incorporated stuff of like how the soul works, like this one where I have uh, soul batteries, you know, where they can store power. And so I did, did work a lot of the stuff in metaphysics, like the window of the mind was based on the notion of like a dream world. I do quite a bit both in Cthulhu and Dungeons and Dragons a lot with um, undead and ghosts like the whole notion of like the spirit and the soul and, and identity and also like possible you know possible worlds I've done some with people encountering their their counterparts anyone that uses their background in their writing it always comes out way more authentic and things like that if you can't tell I'm trying to use your tips to become a good writer this <laughs> this whole interview is just for that to read in five minutes. <laughs> so um, finally, with this deep dive into your process, what's the weirdest unexplained phenomenon that has occurred in your life? Oh, it's my uh, my haunted house that I grew up in. I, I don't know if they're ghosts, but I you know I have my two my two ghostest stories. The house I lived in is still there. Actually, I saw it just um, when I was back back in Maine. It's an old you know multi hundred year old farmhouse. I don't think anything like terrible had ever happened there. So it didn't have like, you know, it wasn't like, oh, the old, the old Johnson place where, you know, Johnson one went, went nuts with that, that chainsaw. No, no one of those. My first story, pretty minor, is I had one of those original LED watches back when they first came out and it was always glowing. So at night I would put it in this uh, cabinet uh, by my bed uh, so I wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't wake me up. And then I, I woke up and I saw it like float out of the cabinet and then slowly drift to the desk. And I thought I was asleep. And then when I woke up in the morning, it was sitting there. The cabinet was open. And it was sitting there. And of course, me and my family said, oh, you just forgot to put it away. You're just dreaming, which you know could be. Then I had one happen when I was fully awake. I, my family was um, 
off somewhere and I was home alone and I was uh, watching TV or something and the stairs going up to the second story of the house, I knew that they would only kind of squeak uh, at about 90 pounds because I remember when I was below 90, I could like zip up them quietly to like ambush my sister and scare. But then once I hit like 90 pounds, the, the stairs would squeak. And it's like, oh, I can't, I can't sneak around anymore. And so I'm like in my, in my room and I hear the sound of the, the door swing open and it could have been just from the wind or something. And so naturally at first I thought my, my family's come back. So I say, Hey, you know, hello. <laughs> no one says anything. If you have you know, siblings, you know, they always like to mess with each other. So, and then I heard like the first step squeak and then I called it again, the second step squeak third step squeak, fourth step squeak. So then I started getting getting nervous. And my first thought, someone was breaking in. So this being Maine, of course, I had a shotgun because, you know, Maine. And being from Maine, I know how to use a shotgun. So, you know, load it and I'm, I'm waiting there. And the way the stairs are set up, there's like a long bookshelf set to the top edge of the stairs. So, but if someone was coming up the stairs, eventually they would they would obviously be, be visible. And then I hear the next step, the next step, squeak, 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 squeak. And nothing. I, can't, I don't see anything. Then the last one squeaks and there's no way, you know, someone have to be like two feet tall to, to not be visible. Nothing. I'm like, you know, shaking. But I didn't start shooting because I had firearm training. So I know you just don't you just don't shoot at stuff. And so I just like went back in my room and just sat there and, until my family came back. And I, I told they didn't they didn't believe me. Of course, they thought I you know, was asleep or something. But that never happened again. But I did not sleep for a couple, couple of days. <laughs> after after that because that was pretty scary i don't understand how when you live in a spooky old house in maine you could just not believe that yeah you kind of got to you know and they didn't it never never hurt me so so that kind of that also kind of got me interested in the whole you know ghost uh, you know metaphysics stuff like what is what was causing that almost no one writes about ghost in philosophy because it's considered pop so i thought I'd, I'd write one i wrote it and got it got it published when we do our podcast, we use the online website, Roll20. Have you ever used any of these online RPG sites like Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds or something like that? I did um, try out um, Roll20. We, uh, My group, meet, we're lucky enough that we can all meet in person. Although we, there was one time we were using uh, uh, an Xbox, actually, because one of our players was going to get to go through training for his judge training in Washington. So, but we do use uh, Map Tool. The way the setup I've got is I've got a LCD projector mounted on the ceiling, pointing down, and then we just set up the maps and project down on that. So I have two instances of Map Tools running, and so we do that in person. It sounds like you found a really good way to implement technology into your regular tape sit down at table experiences do you think that's something that people should experiment w- war with finding ways that technology can help their experience or you can have as much fun without the tech my most enjoyable experiences were of course it's nostalgic as well were way before any of that stuff i think the advantage of using the projector and maps especially with games that are very map intensive like like D, instead of having to sort of like break the moment to draw stuff out you know stop and draw and then like kind of screw it up and then draw again is you can just project it and have the fog of war and also my players used to complain they're like you know because i'd be drawing the stuff out and they'd be like that looks terrible you know it's just these lines and that's the wrong size i got campaign cartographer and so in you know, creating the these beautiful, you know, lavish maps having, you know, projecting in full color. They still complain, <laughs> but they're like, oh, we can't see the doors perfectly or some such thing. But I, I like it mostly because I can have the maps already pre-done. And so there's no like break to, to draw, draw stuff out. It's also handy for Cthulhu. What I can do is, you know, normally you print out handouts and kind of hand them around, but, the, but this way you can kind of project them and everybody can see them at 
at once. So everyone can read them, you know, takes away, I guess, from the, the holding of the paper experience, but they can, they can see the handout. And also you can put up, you know, images of things. Like if you have a picture, you can, you can put it out there. You can do like, if you want to be really elaborate, I'm sure there's some people who create like a, a videos. When I was, um, you know, Star with Cthulhu was like pre, there's no YouTube there. The internet was basically just email and PBSs. But you could do some pretty cool stuff if you really want to put in a lot of time and have have it projected. And I think a big benefit to using the technology is if they ever do complain about the maps or anything not working like that. Like if you ever need to buy some time, you can just blame the technology. Mm-hmm. Getting an error. <laughs> yeah. While well, you're sitting there thinking about what they did wrong <laughs> and how you can fix it. So what aspects of the RPGs do you emphasize? Are you more mechanics and strategy or do you worry more about storytelling when you're running a game? For in terms of the game, it depends a lot on the game. Like D&D tends to be more, it's heavy combat oriented and my players are more role players than role players. I have a couple of players who really like the role playing part and then I have others who really, they're more, if we don't have combat, thinking about 15 minutes of role playing, then it's got to be, there's got to be some dice, some destruction. I generally like the role playing more with the mechanics and stuff uh, to advance the the story because one thing i did like about ad and d was the mechanics were so not that you had to use so much imagination so you there's much more you know kind of storytelling and, and role playing and then around 3.0 you know pathfinder and in a way it kind of went back to the roots it was more of a tabletop combat game you know very specific very grid oriented so when i run D, it's always battle maps um lots and lots of combat within the context of a, a story to satisfy the bloodlust of the murder players and then what's interesting though is the same player who, who's the most gotta have combat no role playing when we're playing cthulhu he's the exact opposite he's like yeah we don't need we'll just you know just we'll just describe it and he's all about the the role playing and the all about the story and so it's this weird transformation he goes from being like the platonic form of the D player you know get his dice and his his miniature and he always wants to you know exactly know where everything is always want to be killing things to the paradigm cthulhu player is all about creating these really quirky interesting characters and can go you know hours without even you know, shooting anything. So I, I generally like the role playing more. And depending on the game I'm playing, you know, very mechanical game like D and D. Yeah, we do a lot of the mechanics for Cthulhu. Uh, we use them as sort of um, a means to telling telling the story. Yeah, if I find with D and D, it's more satisfying to kill everyone you come across. But with Call of Cthulhu, it's a lot easier to kill everyone you come across. Everyone's just people. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's like my friend Ronway says. They're just you know, everyone else. Is, if you're not a monster, you're just a guy. You probably get about eleven hit points. Uh, so do you have any thoughts on the resurgence of popular tabletop games and the gamifying of education? Oh, for the first, um, I'm glad that overcame uh, the whole stigma of the, you know, the 80s when they they had that whole, some groups just got it in their, their conceptual space that D&D was the cause of all this terrible stuff. I mean, I remember, they were, of course, Satanism, they, and they said they claimed to cause like mass shootings and it led people to all this terrible stuff. And then they had mazes and monsters. That, and of course, you had people playing it were all typically outcasts back then. We were all the nerdy kids. And I mean, I was a runner, but running is the nerdiest of sports. If you had any athletes playing it, they were always, you know, track, track people. So it was all, you know, band people, track people, chess club, debate. Then during the 90s, they had that uh, economic kind of gaming company, you know, the downturn gaming companies like GDW, may rest in peace, SPI, etc. were they overextended and folded. I still had my gaming books and, you know, we were meeting like in secret and keeping the keeping the flame burning. And then it started getting popular again. One common explanation is, is that the nerds kind of took over. 
you know, with all the, all it used to be like all the business people. Now it's all, you have people who are techies and people like Stephen Colbert, Vin Diesel, et cetera. Like, yeah, we all play D&D. Um, Anderson Cooper, they're all D&D people. You have all these people who are now kind of top tier celebrities who play it. So now it's kind of cool. It kind of snowballed because it got in the media, you know, because Stranger Things. And so now you have, you know, celebrities playing it. It's in the media. And so now it's, it's cool again, which is, which is great. I'm glad people are getting into it and it's and it's popular because i think you know not only do i feel vindicated like yes i was i was right all along but also i think it's a very positive hobby you learn good social skills you learn problem solving math probability history and all kinds of skills so a lot of what i know even as a philosopher is from stuff i learned from gaming now for the gamification i've tried to incorporate games into teaching i made uh, years ago i made a game called the state of nature game which was based on uh, uh, basically the hobbesian state of nature you know like the idea is there's no government and everybody's deathmatch essentially everybody's on there and to kind of give them a you know taste of how that would that would work but kind of the problem i found with gamification one is it's um hype like when i hear people talking about gamification gamification i'll ask them oh you know so what what games do you play? And they're like, uh, I gamify stuff. Some people are doing it and they, they're they not gamers and they're just hyping it. So it's just that. Kind of the second, I guess, a more substantial problem is that what I found is when I'm teaching people to game, what I'm typically doing is I'm using like my teaching skills to teach gaming. And so it's not like the gaming that's teaching them stuff. It's more like I was doing the teachification of gaming in a way, because it's what we all do. You get a new player and you know, teach them how the you know the game works, etc. And so I'm not sure how useful it is, you know, as a teaching tool, broadly speaking. I know it definitely has some applications. Like, for example, for ethics, uh, role playing can be pretty useful. You, if you give people like, um, imagine your like a your utilitarian goal is to you know maximize consequences. You know, how would you play this scenario? You know, you've got like a, a case where you have a, a drug you can extract. You know, do a sci-fi scenario. You can you can extract um, from certain people this this substance that can save millions of lives, but it kills them. So morally, what do you do? And you kind of, you can role play like a scenario and that that's useful. And also like with all stuff in education, they try to apply to things often where it doesn't apply to. So I think kind of the weak point is if people are doing gamification, just so they can say gamifying, just like, you know, any fad, that's not going to, going to work. And most of that I've experienced has been really cringy. And as mm. someone who actually games, it's, I'm just sitting there like, no, this isn't mm. how that works. It's like someone trying to be the cool dad. Good teachers never just try to be cool because people smell the, they can smell the lack of cool. So we've talked a lot about Call of Cthulhu, obviously, and mm-hmm. then D&D. What, what other tabletop games would you say you play or some of your favorites? I went through a big uh, wargaming phase. So I played a lot of the old um, Avalon Hill, you know, like Dune um, and some of their, a lot of their war games. I used to play a lot of the SPI stuff, the little Steve Jackson games, you know, like when they were in the little packets like Ogre, GV, they had the original Starfleet Battles, uh, Battletech, used to play a lot of Battletech. Still got all my stuff. Yeah, RuneQuest, Stormbringer, King Arthur game, Paranoia, did a lot of tons of Traveler cyberpunk boot hill oh god there's tons of um and probably tons i've forgotten you know because I, every time a game would come out i'd go i'd, I'd mow lawns i got i got 325 an hour and games were like typically like 10 bucks back then i'd mow like four lawns and that'd be my game i definitely am a big fan of traveler that's one of my favorites and um you mentioned cyberpunk they're mm-hmm. now making that video game and let me tell you if the kennedy's gang is not in the video game it's a complete waste <laughs> As a keeper, 
What what do you hate more, metagamers or rules lawyers? Rules lawyers can be okay because I take the kind of the view I do like when I'm teaching that if I'm wrong and someone catches it, that they're doing me a favor. The class is not getting like wrong information or if we were playing the game, if the rule lawyer is like, oh, I think we're doing this wrong uh, and they approach it like that, like let's get the rules right, that's cool. If they're doing it kind of like the rules lawyer where they're trying to be annoying in their interpretation, because one of the worst types of players is someone who wants to fight everything and just waste time and turn it into a conflict because that, that ends up just ruining the game. So that type, they're bad. Metagame is gaming. If someone knows the game well, and they're playing well, and they're using stuff they've learned because they've been playing it for years, unavoidable. You know, in a way, it's worse for someone who's been playing since 1979 to like, oh, gosh, I don't know how carrion crawlers work. I guess my character would just run into the darkness, you know, screaming and naked. That's terrible. So someone who's like a good metagamer is kind of like, okay, you know, I'm playing a long time, so I'm going to know things, So, I'll, but I'll, I'll try to play in character. But a bad metagamer is someone who's kind of cheating, where they use their their knowledge of stuff to sort of exploit and break the spirit of the game, where they're not really playing the game, they're trying to work exploits. Kind of technically okay, because it's in the system, but it kind of ruins the fun of the game, because they're not playing the game, they're playing the cheap exploit. So I'd say that the meta lawyer, so I just avoided your question. <laughs> you might have avoided my question, but you're the only person I've ever heard have any kind of good things to say about either of them, so... I try to say good things about people. And uh, we're coming up on our final question, and it's the most important question that we ever ask anybody on this. Would you rather fight a hundred duck-sized Cthulhus or one Cthulhu-sized duck? Oh, one Cthulhu-sized duck, because I have um, recipes being from Maine for duck. And I, I think as a being from Maine, I think I have probably a couple levels of ranger with wildlife as my favorite enemy. So the duck would be easy, easy to defeat. Plus, he'd be, what's, what's for dinner? I mean, he could feed the whole town. I would fight that duck. Plus, you know, those little Cthulhu things. I mean, think of that. Like, each one would be a D100 sanity loss. Oh, that'd be that'd be terrible. Yeah, duck. Definitely the duck. Duck is probably tastier than Cthulhu, but I mean, I don't know until you try it. A little garlic, you know, saute it a bit, you know, blackened. Yeah, but I'll let someone else do the hunting. Well, yeah. You always said Bob. Bob does the testing. <laughs> Thank you, Michael, for sharing your experiences with our listeners. We really appreciate your time and your insights. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. If you'd like to see more of Michael Labossier's work, check out drivethroughrpg.com. We'll provide a link in the show notes to his author page there. If there's anything you'd like to plug, Michael. I'm working on converting my... 48 Call of Cthulhu scenarios to 7th edition. Plus, uh, I talked to the folks at Chaosium, and I'm going to eventually convert all my monographs and also um, Blood Moon, the scenario from Strange Eons. All that stuff will eventually be 7th edition, hopefully before 8th edition <laughs> comes out. Until next time, roll for sanity. Dun, dun, dun. The Lovecraft Tapes podcast is copyright 2019. For more information and sponsorship opportunities, please send email to podcast at thelovecrafttapes.com. Support the Lovecraft Tapes podcast and get access to exclusive content and rewards at patreon.com slash lovecrafttapes.